following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. We don't trespass too much on, uh, on your time. So please open your copy of God's Word to the book of Lamentations. It's going to be really uh, part of the second half of your Bible. If you crack your Bible open somewhere down the middle, you'll, you'll probably be in the Psalms. Um, just keep going right. You'll get through the wisdom, literature, Psalms and Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, and you'll land into the major prophets. Go through Isaiah. Go through Jeremiah. We're going to be right here in, in Lamentations. As you may recall, we're working our way through this summer. Through the wisdom literature, which we did, we went through the five books of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, and we've uh, the last uh, really two weeks have looked at um, uh, the major prophets. So we began with Isaiah. We're skipping Jeremiah, and we're here now in Lamentations because we'll visit Jeremiah when we conclude our study through that book uh, at the beginning of next year. So the book of Lamentations. Let's first begin with prayer, and then. Uh, and then we'll, we'll dig in. Father, for the remainder of the time we have this morning gathered as your people, would, would our hearts, which have been prepared through singing and prayer, now be fed and nourished by your word, not by any creativity or ingenuity on my part, but God, through the, the working of the Spirit in this preaching and in the hearts and the, and the ears and the minds in the eyes of those who are receiving the true word of the gospel, we pray, God, that you would make much of yourself despite a difficult and heavy topic we discussed this morning. Pray, God, for comfort, for hope, and uh, for truth to reign in our hearts despite our circumstances. And, God, there, there would be, by your grace, a, a truth this morning that is wedged in our minds that we remember and, and set to our, to our memory so that when we are desperate and in despair, we can cling to the truth of hope as it's presented to us in the book of Lamentations. So, Lord, we love you. We thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The, the heat was on, and that's just unnecessary. <laughs> Hopefully you guys can feel the, the air kick on here in a minute too. Well, we're going to be in the book of Lamentations. And Lamentations, as, uh, uh, as Jake has already mentioned, is a book really about hope and trust in the midst of difficult circumstances. It's about navigating true and difficult emotions that inevitably we all face when we're reflecting on the carnage of sin in our own life of the sin in others who affect us, the sin in our world that we have to navigate through as Christians. It's inescapable, the reality of sin, and that reality can often disappoint and cause us to have disillusionments about what is right and good and true. And any Christian, no matter how mature or how long they've been walking with the Lord, will from time to time find it difficult to believe the truth held out in the Bible. The only Christian who would deny that truth is a new Christian who has not lived in Christ long enough to recognize it. But it's the truth of the Bible which we hold to, 
And when we're faced with the reality and the inescapable tendency of our own hearts towards despair and difficulty and to lament, we often must turn again back to those same truths. And this is what the book of Lamentation offers us. It offers us a look into the lament of a prophet, probably here Jeremiah, from the destruction of his city in Jerusalem after the Babylonians have destroyed it and taken over and carted off many into their own nation. What was left was a smoldering pile of rubble. And as often when it goes, when the idols are torn down, there is destruction and despair in the hearts of those who trusted in them. And when it all has been taken away and all has been stripped away, what is left must only be what is true. And so this is a, a hard look at the realities of sin and destruction in our life and in the world around us and how we must respond to it and in light of it. In the beginning of this year, really for the first time in my life, I experienced really difficult um, circumstances. A really close friend and mentor, a brother in the faith, passed away uh, unexpectedly. And many of you, you know this, you may know him, Clint Clifton, who really without whom this church would not exist. And he died tragically in a plane crash as he was flying home from Georgia and on his way then to Iceland to do mission work and things like that. And he got caught in a storm, the plane went down and he died. And the news, of course, was shocking to everybody who heard it, but for those who knew Clint personally, it was deeply devastating, not simply for his family, who felt that the most, but for those who considered Clint a close friend and a mentor and a brother in Christ. And for the first time in, in my life, I had to grapple with what it meant to lose somebody, to suffer in any real meaningful way. By God's grace, my life has not been marked by suffering. The people in my life whom I've known have died were those who were expected to die, great-grandparents and those who I knew who were suffering for illnesses for years. But never in my wildest dreams would I have ever imagined losing and suffering somebody as close to me as difficult as it would have been. And in those subsequent months of the remaining of winter, I stumbled through the Bible trying to figure out how to process emotions, how to process grief. As my wife may tell you, I'm a bit of an emotionless person. Not that I lack emotions, but often tend to process them in really one way. Shove them down inside and hope they go away. Not healthy, not recommended, but typically I feel far less than these, those around me. And that this circumstance was different for me. This circumstance caused a great wound and a great rift. And I cried real tears rather than simply feeling like I could but won't. I wondered as I was driving always downtown, passing the airport here on Route 2 and 17, knowing that's where Clint once kept his plane. Over and over again, I would imagine what it would be like to lose somebody close to me, and here I am facing the emotion of that in real time. What helped me was the Book of Lamentations, among others. The promises and the hope held out in the Book of Lamentation gives us a great and meaningful path charted for God's people to navigate what is difficult in life. And this isn't simply the tragedy of loss. Many of us at some time may experience this, but 
the difficulty of our own circumstances when things are taken from us, perhaps unfairly, or something does not turn out the way that we had imagined, hoped, even prayed for, when the promises that God has made to us in His Word seem like they're failing, despite our attempts to be faithful and diligent in all that we do, despite our prayers and our diligence to obedience, when we look at the mirror and we see the tragedy of our own sin and the destruction of our circumstances caused by our own decisions. The biblical model of navigating these realities is demonstrated in the book of Lamentations. And so this morning I want to simply point our attention to what's happening in the book of Lamentations for our edification. That as the prophet Jeremiah laments through his words, we will learn how to deal with deep and difficult circumstances in our lives. How to deal with the destruction of sin, the hurt and the sorrow that living in a fallen world will bring into our lives. The circumstance and the context of the book of Lamentations is the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. This is at the end of Jeremiah, when Babylon does indeed take over and cart off all of the inhabitants of Judah into Babylon. And in their wake, they leave destruction. They destroy the temple. And this place, Jerusalem and the temple, was the center, remember, the center of Israel's life. This is where God's name dwelled among his people. The glory of God fills the temple. This was important not just to the national identity of Israel and Jerusalem, but to the very theological covenant that God made with his people. His promise to be their God and he, them, his people, was set on display as he dwelled with them in that city. And the Babylonians came, as God had warned them through his prophets, destroys the city, lays Judah to waste, takes his people into exile, and leaves a small but suffering remnant to sort out the mess. Many would die, many would suffer, and their hope has been ground to a pulp. And it's in this context that Jeremiah then writes this prayer of lament, this collection of, of, of songs and prayers about how and why this could have happened, knowing full well the theological answers, but still crying aloud to God to help him navigate what he's experiencing. The reason this happens to Judah is because there are assumptions within the, the people of God that were bordering on arrogance. They had a complacency towards God's goodness and towards his protection. And this complacency in Judah, just like in Israel, who were led into captivity by the Assyrians maybe a century earlier, caused a decline in the attitude of God's people towards his law and towards the worship that it prescribes. They became complacent. They assumed on God's goodness. They knew the verses, like we sang this morning, that that God's goodness and steadfast love never ceases, that His mercies are new every morning, they took that to mean for themselves that God will never bring harm against His people, even if they worship false idols, 
even if they chase after false gods, even if they, they parade around promiscuously, marrying other nations instead of protecting themselves from the consequences of sin and idolatry, submitting themselves to the work and the word of God. So this decline in their attitude and reverence towards God and his word led God to chastise them. A punishment and a judgment on Israel and on Judah led to their captivity. God saw fit to level Jerusalem the place of his own dwelling among them. And this would have been devastating for the people. This would have been devastating for those whose hope was in the promise of God, who understood their identity was as God's people. Their hope and their trust and their confidence was that because they were Hebrews, children of Abraham, nothing could ever happen. And then Jeremiah looks over a wasteland and feels deeply hurt, Sorrow, confusion, not theologically, but emotionally, he is distraught. Perhaps you've been in a similar experience. Your trust in God has been on autopilot for so long that once a difficult circumstance arises or something out of the blue happens to you, you're all of a sudden dazed and confused and you're not sure how this happened. You didn't see the warning signs and all of a sudden you've lost your job or someone has ended a relationship, or you received bad news, and you're reeling from the, from the news. You're not sure what to make of it. This is how Jerusalem must have felt. As one commentator had put it succinctly, that Jerusalem, the fall of Jerusalem, marks the collapse of everything for Israel. Not only their physical property and relationships, and their national and political identity, but also the very core of their convictions, their aspirations, and their hope. Everything that they held dear, everything they considered about themselves, which was great, was gone. And it did not seem like there was any hope that it would ever return. So the book of Lamentations, friends, is it's a, an expression of lament. It's an expression of Lament or emotional pain and sorrow because of the loss of something so significant. And so we study the book of Lamentations because we believe that it can teach us something even today. That though we may not experience the loss of national identity or political identity, we may indeed and perhaps will inevitably experience the loss of something so significant to us that we have no clue how to comprehend what God is up to in this situation. So the book of Lamentations can teach us how to respond to painful and bitter circumstances. It can show us how to navigate these emotions when we are shocked by certain events or when we're confused as to what God is up to. The book of Lamentation reveals not just a theology of lament, but as well it reveals for us a model of how God's people, including Christians today, must express their pain and their disappointment without falling into sin or anger or disillusionment towards God, which is always the temptation. But more than this, the book of Jeremiah points us to consider the future hope beyond our present hardship. It points us beyond the future hope 
or beyond our present hardship to the future hope that God has in store for each one of us. Specifically, it leads us to Christ, who himself has experienced the pain of loss, the burden of judgment, and the ultimate glory of resurrection. So a couple notes about the book of Lamentations before we look more specifically at its chapters. It has five chapters laid out, and these chapters are essentially They're songs of lament that one would sing in great sorrow and in distress. And chapters 1 through 4 are laid out in acrostics, each one starting with a particular letter of the Hebrew alphabet, much like Psalm 119 is in the book of Psalms. Chapter 5 is not an acrostic. Chapter 5 is not an acrostic, but it also has 22 verses, the same amount of letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And so these five taken together are both a poetic lament, songs that are meant to reveal what God is teaching his people through their struggle and their loss of identity. And ultimately, it leads up to a crescendo in chapter 3, which is three times as long, 66 verses, which indicates for us the centrality and the importance of that part of the book. And so in chapter 1 and chapter 2 leads to God's faithfulness proclaimed in chapter 3, from which chapters 4 and 5 reflect and build upon. So we're going to likewise make our way towards chapter 3 through the first two chapters and then respond and reflect upon the truth in chapter 3 in chapters 4 and 5. First, let's look in the first two chapters. The first things that we see in these two chapters is that lamentation teaches us to grieve and mourn. Lamentations teaches us to grieve and mourn. Notice the first words of the opening chapters. Verse 1, chapter 1, How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. She who is great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. Again in chapter 2, verse 1. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. Israel is said to be put under a cloud, a dark cloud of despair, of judgment, of anger. In chapter 1, how lonely is the city that was once full of people, now desolate, who was once glorious like a princess, now distraught like a slave. It begins with the word, how. In fact, this is the original title of the book here in Hebrew, is how. As in, how could this have happened to us? How can we trust God in the midst of circumstances that are so devastating? How can we ever return to what was once lost? This Hebrew title, how, reflects the tone of the book. The sorrow and despair, the confusion and the grief. 
These are the questions that most who are grieving and suffering, who have received bad news, often first ask themselves, how could this be? Have you ever sat with somebody who received bad news? And they ask the question, not necessarily wanting you to answer, but nonetheless, how could this have happened? How could this be for my good? Have you ever wondered those same questions in your own hurt? It's a question that comes out of grief. One that comes after seeing that which you love taken away, destroyed, and thrown down. Israel once enjoyed the splendor of God's protection and favor, and yet now sits under a dark and gloomy cloud of God's judgment, and they are distraught. God's judgment comes through the means of Jerusalem's enemies. We see that in verse 5 of chapter 1. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away captives before the foe. Or in verse 16, there again in chapter 1. For these things I weep. My, my eyes flow with tears for a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate for the enemy has prevailed. The means by which God brings about his judgment is through the enemies prevailing over Jerusalem, leaving a destruction in their wake that they have never known before. And yet they still recognize, even in their lament, that though the means is through the enemies. The cause is still God. Again, look in verse 5, that second part. It says that her foes have become her head. Her enemies prosper. Why? Because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Or again in chapter 2, in those verses 2 and 3, the Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. They knew that the blame could not be laid on the enemies, that it was God who was directly responsible for their judgment. It was his wrath and his punishment that they are then now experiencing. But instead of then blaming God in an accusatory way, lamentation allows the reality of pain and suffering to produce this honest expression of concern and mourning. Look in verse 9 of chapter 1. This is the prayer that he lifts up to God. He says, O Lord, there at the end of verse 9, O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. See, though Jeremiah re rightly recognizes that through the means of her enemies, God has brought judgment on them, the cry is not one to blame God, but to act on behalf of the people to cry for mercy. O oh Lord, behold my affliction. This is the call to prayer that they would seek God's mercies. 
that they would cast themselves upon the grace and mercy of God's goodness. In verse 9, he says, Behold my affliction, acknowledging the hurt and the loss and the bitterness and the despair by going to God in prayer, pleading with God. And see, this is what grief does. It raises questions that drive us to prayer and to lament. Instead of taking what is difficult and throwing it away or burying it under some sort of circumstance or dismissing it with some kind of theological reasoning, we must be driven to prayer and bring our lament to God. We must say here with the prophet, O Lord, behold our affliction. We must acknowledge before God in prayer the deep and difficult circumstances we experience. We must acknowledge our hurt and our loss, our suffering. We must acknowledge that we are confused or bitter and that we despair despite all the things that we know to be true in our minds. We nonetheless struggle and fight to believe them in our hearts. It raises the questions that should drive us to lament. And this lament is a crucial part. This prayer is a crucial part in the process of our grieving. It should never be skipped. We should never choose instead to immediately quell the rising tide of despair in our hearts with quaint phrases. You might have said this before. Well, God's got this. God's got this. Or try to calm your anxieties with distant doctrines, quickly reciting Romans 8:28 and beyond that all things work together for good. God does indeed got this, and those things are indeed true. All things will work together for the good of those who are called according to His purpose. And yet, dismissing the truth and the reality of sin and pain and despair will not allow you to walk in healing. It will not allow you to truly experience the process that grief needs you to experience when you dismiss it with quaint phrases and distant doctrines. And so what do we do? You must allow yourself to feel the shame and vexation of sin. Acknowledge the fact that this is real, this is painful, and it hurts. This is what Jeremiah does again. In verse 8, he says that Jerusalem has sinned grievously. Therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. He's feeling and acknowledging the vexation of sin that has ripped apart the nation. He keeps going, verse 9. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. And so he cries, O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. Or again in verse 14 of chapter 2. He says that your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes. But you have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. It's lamenting and feeling the effect that sin and disobedience has been rampant in the lives of the nation there for far too long. It is a tragedy and a shame on their part that they have allowed such nakedness and sin to go unchecked. Ignoring the true prophets of God for those that would come and teach false promises and tickle their ears with false Gospels and prophecies. 
No, instead we must allow ourselves to feel the vexation of sin, to recognize and acknowledge the shame of sin in this world or in our own lives. We must tour the ruins of depravity, much like we would tour the grounds of Auschwitz or Birkenau today. Indeed, we can go and visit these sites of such heinous evil and destruction. And anyone who goes there and views these death camps walks away much more than just a greater view of history with the great weight and burden of the evil and depravity of man. This is how we should feel about sin. And as we remember and allow grief to shine a light on our own sin or the realities of shame and sin in our world, we must let this set up for us a memorial of sorts where we can grieve what is lost. And not simply lost in our own lives, but lost ultimately there in Genesis 3. The grace and righteousness and perfection of mankind made to be in a relationship with God all was lost by man's rebellion against him. We grieve the loss of our innocence and of our grace and righteousness before God. And we grieve its effects on us today. So friends, we must lament and set up memorials like this in our lives. The discipline of prayer helps us to do this. And much more should our prayer be filled with lament and grief than simply requests or petitions. Again, as an author once put it, that these memorials help us remember by making us feel the weight of a tragedy. Without them, we are prone to forget and repeat the mistakes of the past. They remind us that, we, that there are lessons to be learned. The smoldering ruins of Jerusalem sent a message, and Lamentations is its memorial. And the lesson is clear. God is long-suffering and merciful, but rebellion against His rule has consequences. Lamentations was written to mourn the scale of the brokenness in this world. The fall of Jerusalem reminds us of the powerful nature of sin and the sacredness of God's holiness. Sin is that bad, and God is that holy. So Lamentations is a memorial to a broken world and a holy God. So we see that the first things in chapters 1 and 2 that Lamentation teaches us is to grieve and to mourn. But these two chapters lead us to the crescendo of the book in chapter 3, where we are then taught to remember and trust. To remember and trust. And in chapter 3, it's divided really into two parts, verses 1 through 20, and then 20 through 66, or 21 through 66. And this first part, verses 1 through 20, is the despair and the lament of a broken soul. Notice the perspective I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. It surely is against me. He turns his hand again and again the whole day long. Series of these verses teach us of the longing of the soul to be made right with God, but who experiences the brokenness of the world around them. He says again in verse 1 and 2 that he has been brought low under the hand of God's wrath. In verses 17 and 18, again, my soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. Friends, this 
This lament is one that speaks to those who are at the very bottom of their faith. This lament is the the one of a broken soul where the Bible meets them at the bottom of their despair. Their hope is gone. He says that I have forgotten what happiness is. Now, he's not being hyperbolic. He's not being facetious or simply poetic. The destruction and the loss of the significance of the temple has really caused a bereft in the soul of this this person. My soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. Have you ever lost your appetite because of something that has caused great distress? Have you ever felt like you couldn't sleep, you couldn't act, couldn't work, that you became a shell of a person because of the difficult circumstances around you? It's no wonder that someone who has lost so much can say, I've forgotten what happiness even is. My endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. This is the very bottom of faith where all hope in the Lord is lost. It threatens to be snuffed out, the light of faith. But then in verse 21 through 26, we're led to recall a different set of facts. Not of God's anger and of justice, not of what God has done in his judgment against his people, but one about who God is in his character. One that we are called to recall and to rehearse for the sake of restoring that hope which is so close from being extinguished. And he says in verse 18 that my hope is so far from the Lord that it is close to perishing, that his soul continually remembers how difficult it is and is bowed down within him. He says, but I call this to mind and therefore will have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that the one should wait for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. This is a promise that we are to call to ourselves over and over again to remind ourselves that this is who God is. And we are called to rehearse these. And as we rehearse these truths, we're challenged to believe them. Remembering must lead to trusting. And so what are the truths that are rehearsed here that we might learn to trust them in the midst of difficult circumstances? What are the truths that you need to cling to when you receive the news, the tragic news of a loss of a loved one or a deal that has fallen through or the ending of a relationship or some other tragedy? It is the good news of God's character. We learn three things about God here that is our trust and our hope. First, that He is faithful. There in verses 22 through 23. God is faithful. His mercies are new every morning, for great is your faithfulness. His steadfast love never ceases, and His mercies never come 
to an end. This means that the mercies of God, they are greater and more innumerable than our sorrows. The storehouses and the riches of God's mercy are inexhaustible. You can never out-sorrow God's mercy. There is no depth of sin and sorrow to which God's grace and mercy is not deeper still. His mercies, we are told, are new every morning. Not new as in He runs out and creates more, but new in that there is a never-ending, never-exhausting supply, always in fresh supply for us. We are able to, day after day, grant, grab hold of them, which grants us grace and endurance for as long as suffering may lay hold upon us. This is good news which comforts us that God who is faithful opens up the floodgates of His mercies so that those who are in the pit of despair can eat and flourish and have hope. We base our hope on the faithfulness of God's character, but we also base it on the fact that He is working and continues to work. That though His mercies never cease, neither does His work on our behalf. In verse 25 through 27, we are called to continue to wait upon the Lord. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to those whose soul seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. We learn that He is continually working for the good of His people, that He is working on their behalf despite what their circumstances tell them. See, friends, when you wait upon the Lord, you are not wasting your time. That's the truth. Now, I know waiting can be hard, right? Waiting in line for the person ahead of you who's slow and taking their time. Waiting on somebody to answer a question that you know the answer to. Waiting for your kid to hurry up and do something you're patiently trying to give them and teach them independence to do when you can simply do it in three seconds. Waiting on the Lord... It's difficult. We are an impatient people, but if we wait upon the Lord, it says that He will teach us what it means to trust in Him for salvation. It is good that one should wait upon the Lord. In Hebrew, the wording is a bit different. All those sentences there in verse 25, 26, and 27 begin with the word for good. So good it is for those who wait for them and who seek Him. Good it is that those who wait quietly will receive the salvation of the Lord. And good it is for a man that he should bear the yoke in his youth. It is good. Waiting is good. Our tendency when we feel the pressure of of God's judgment or burden or the difficulty of circumstances is to get out of it as quickly as we can. But friends, might you think just for a moment in your prayers of lament to linger for what God might be teaching you. You must be sustained in such waiting, but it is driven by the promise that He is both faithful and is working for you. But lastly, we learn about God's character. Not only is He faithful in working, but that He is loving. It says in verse 31 through 33, For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though He cause grief, He will have compassion, according to the abundance of His steadfast love. For He does not afflict from His heart or grieve the children of men. 
This is a great and precious promise of God's people that He is loving, that He is compassionate according to the abundance of His steadfast love, which we have already seen is unending and never ceasing. So His compassion too has no end and no exhaustion. It cannot be defeated or outsorrowed. He does not afflict from His heart, though He may cause grief. His compassion is greater still. He does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. He is loving. See, God's compassion can and must be felt and known from our hardships. Even in God's own chastisement and punishment of his people, which is always in love, we can feel and know and understand his compassion towards his people. What are we to understand about his compassion? It is that he is not out to get us. He is not somebody who is simply angry and therefore wants to get even. His judgments and our hardships are always according to the purpose that is for our good because his heart is for us. It is not simply who he is to go after his people out of anger. Though he may cause grief, he has compassion because he does not afflict from his heart. The affliction, what it means then, is that the affliction comes from a deeper place of love, not anger. He is loving. What God brings about in your life absolutely fits with His heart for you. And so we are called by these verses here to rehearse biblical truth. And the rehearsing over and over again is transformative for the life of those who are placing their hope in God. It's why we sing songs that remind us here of the truth of God's Word. It's why we pray and read the Bible over and over again. It's why we say often the same things in our services to remind us over and over, to rehearse over and over this biblical truth which is transformative to the life of the believer who is going through despair that God is loving, faithful. This rehearsing of God's truth replenishes the well of hope from which our weary souls may come and draw and quench our thirst. The book ends in the last two chapters here on the basis of this truth which we hang our hope and trust upon calling us to repent and reconcile. Chapters 4 and 5 lead us to the process of reconciling our faith, that which we have just rehearsed and called ourselves to trust in and believe, to reconcile our faith with the brokenness of the world around us. So in these last two chapters, the goal here is to, in one sense, help us wrap our mind around what's going on in the world, why things are happening to us to make sense of the senseless, to find hope in the hopeless. Specifically, we are given three ways quickly to reconcile our faith with the fallenness of the world. We are called in chapter 4 to repent. Look in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, how the gold has gone dim, the pure gold is changed, the holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion worth their weight in fine gold, how they were regarded now as earthen pots, the works of potter's hands. Even the jackals offer the breast, they nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the root of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives it to them. 
Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the street. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. What's the picture here? That there was a greatness to Israel which once was the prosperity and the security and the pride of their people. The people in whom they trusted, their princes and their princess and their leaders, the gold and the riches of the kingdom, that was the pride of God's people. All of that now is laid to waste and their pride is no more. They have led themselves by their pride and their arrogance to their own destruction. It says in verses 12 and 13 that the kings of the earth did not believe, nor did any inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. But that's exactly what happened. This is what happened. This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. And it was their idolatry, their injustice, their ignoring of the words of God which led to the destruction. See, now God has brought ruin among them. And in the midst of their ruin, they now realize just how far they have fallen. Again, in verses 7 through 10, we can see that they are distraught by what has happened to them. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire, but now their face is blacker than soot. They, have not recognized, they are not recognized in the street. Their skins have shriveled onto their bones. They have become dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who wasted away, pierced by the lack of fruits in the field. The hands of the compassionate women have boiled their own children. They have become their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. They have fallen far from the state of grace and prosperity. So the response here is one of repentance and confession. In verse 1 in chapter 5, he cries out, Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. This is the call to recognize that they have fallen before God. That they are disgraced and ashamed because of God's holiness and His justice. And so they are called to recognize that they must change their ways. In verse 17, they are said to have a change of heart. For this, our heart has become sick. For these things, our eyes have grown dim. They now know that they have trusted in all the wrong things that they who were once full and boasted in the fullness of their bellies, now in their starvation turn to the Lord that he might remember them. So they are called to repent, but also now to seek to recover joy and hope. In verses 13, we see there in chapter 5 that young men are compelled to grind at the mill. Boys stagger under the loads of wood. Old men have left the city gate. The young men left their music, and the joy of our hearts have ceased. Our dancing has turned into mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. As they repent and acknowledge their iniquities, they are now called to God to recover joy and hope that was once lost. That which was lost, the joy, the music, the prosperity, they seek now not by their own hands, but by God. Lamenting then will bring someone through the prayer of repentance to casting themselves upon the mercy of God that he might restore to them their joy and hope. This is why he says in verse 21, Restore us to yourself, O Lord, 
that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. We are called to trust and seek the restoration, not by our own strength, but by what God would provide. And ultimately, we are called to rest in this. For the promise is we rest not in our own strength, which has failed us, but in the strength the Lord provides. In verse 19, all of this despair rests on the promises of God's character seen in chapter 3 when he says that you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew us our days as of old. We are to rest in the truth of God's kingship, His sovereignty, that He alone has the power to restore us and to make us new again. Well, friends, this is the common plight of mankind who recognizes that because we sin, devastation will result in this world and often come visit upon us. Even God may punish and chastise us for our sin. The Bible calls this discipline. And yet we are to look to God and recognize that we are not alone in our suffering. That we can pray these prayers of lament because we have one who has also suffered with us. The darkest day in history was not the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. It was not when Babylon took Israel and Judah into captivity. The darkest day in human history was Good Friday. When the temple of God and the flesh was destroyed. When Christ hung on the cross. When the sun literally lost its light. And Jesus died for our sins. We are told that this death was for us. That Jesus suffers that which we were made to suffer because of our sin. Good Friday is good because it is substitutionary. And so lament here leads us to reflect on he who suffers most or has suffered most. Christ on the cross suffers the pain and the hurt and the sorrow, as Isaiah calls him, the man of great sorrows because he loves us. The character of God who is faithful, just, long-suffering and loving, working on our behalf is seen in the person and work of Jesus who goes to the cross, suffering for our sins, who was made to be risen again on the third day. So you and I are called to lament, but lament with hope. I want to end just by going to Psalm 30 here and see that the promise here, which those who hope ultimately in Christ, who suffers for us, for our sin, grants for us the true hope we have. In Psalm 30, this is a psalm here of David, but who speaks of the difficulty of circumstances and what God's promise ultimately leads to. Not to sorrow, but to joy. He says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up, and you have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought me up and brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. 
for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid my face, and I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. This is the promise of God's people, that those who trust in God, who pray through difficult circumstances and cry out to God, despite the circumstances brought about beyond their their ability to understand, their trust and their hope can be anchored in God. We, friends, can look to Christ who suffers, who turns our weeping into singing, our dancing, our mourning into dancing. Our glory would be singing in the praise, not in our silence, that we would give thanks forever and ever. The poet and hymn writer William Cooper in 1774 wrote the hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take, the clouds ye so much dread, are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. For behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Let's pray. God, help us to see the sweetness of your mercy and love for us through the bitterness of our circumstances. God, may the book of Lamentation just briefly opened before us this morning. Lead us to know and understand that we are called to grieve and mourn in honest and authentic ways, but our grieving and our mourning leads us to remember and trust in your character and the way that you've revealed yourself, faithful, loving, always working, that as we rehearse these truths, we are led then to repent of our own sin and to reconcile ourselves by faith to a world that is broken by sin and yet among a people redeemed by such sin through Christ. May he be our anchor of our soul so that when the tempest and the storms roll over us, we are not left in despair, but we are hopeful. Lord, for much more we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com.
is well.